You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're beginning a new study of the book of 2 Peter. We're calling Be Diligent. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. If I'm being honest, a couple of years ago I learned a word. It's not to say I really learned it. I got really familiar with a word. I'm guessing you did too. The word was pandemic, right? I'd heard the word. I knew how to define the word. I, I don't know that I'd ever said the word before. So it's really wreaked havoc on our lives, obviously. But I want to talk about maybe something that hits our life more. And I would call it an epidemic, but it's probably a pandemic too. And it's this idea of busyness. When I look at my life and I start thinking about my schedule, it's easy for me to get overwhelmed. And so what will happen is somebody will come up to me and they'll be like, hey, Lance, how you doing? How's your week been? And you know, I, I say those words, and I hate it when I say those words. Man, I'm just so busy. And I can wear it like a badge, like, look at me, I'm really, really busy. Now, if I'm being really honest, part of why I hate it is because I feel like we wear it like a badge. The reality is, there's nothing to be proud of about being busy. The reality is, it's my failure to manage my schedule appropriately. So I don't need to be proud of the fact that I'm busy. Matter of fact, I could even get there theologically with this statement. If God has said that he will supply to me what I need to live my life, and I find that I don't have enough time, then I have put things into my schedule that God's not calling me to do. See how that works? Because what ends up happening is our busyness is really a spiritual issue, I think. Thomas Kelly was uh, a Quaker uh, missionary, and he writes in one of his books this idea when he says, much of our acceptance of multitudes of obligations is due to our inability to say no, okay? Much of our acceptance of the obligations is due to our inability to say no. We calculate the task had to be done. We saw that no one was ready to undertake it. We calculated the need, we calculated our time, and then decided maybe we could squeeze that in somewhere. I've been there. Maybe you have too. And then he comes to this conclusion. But the decision was a heady decision not made within the sanctuary of our soul. See, I think that's why it's a spiritual issue. God, what are you calling me to? You've given me 24 hours of this day. How would you have me invest this time? Not because it makes sense, not because nobody else will do it. Lord, how would you have me step into this in a way that would honor you? Well, we're going to get to talk about that some this morning. Because in the Christian life that we live, it's really easy to be overwhelmed with, I don't know what to do, I don't know where to go, Lord, what would you have me do? And I have all of these people telling me all the things I need to be doing. So we begin this morning in our new series called Second, uh, in Second Peter. We're calling it Be Diligent. If you want to open up your copy of Scripture, I invite you to open up your copy of Scripture to Second Peter chapter 1. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, it seems like we just did this. Well, kind of. So Peter writes two epistles. We did 1 Peter in the fall, and we're doing 2 Peter right now. And so what we're going to do is this. The idea was Peter had a lot to share with the church. And so the idea to get the full picture of what he wanted to share is why we did, we're doing these so close to each other. 
And if you're thinking, well, is this just a continuation? Well, kind of. It really has a different side to it. So 1 Peter, if you remember, we called it this road trip that we're just passing through this world. We're alien, aliens here. We're sojourners here. The world is not going to think the way we think. The world's not going to uh, believe what we believe. And so we will meet with external opposition. Life is going to be hard. Don't be surprised by it, that the world will look at us and just not understand how we think or process things. Second Peter is different. Second Peter is internal opposition, whereas First Peter says, this is how the world is going to come at you. Second Peter says, be careful about what's inside your church. Be careful about who speaks. Be careful about what is being taught. Be careful about what's being communicated because... While 1 Peter talks about hostility and what the angst of the world is going to be as it comes against us, 2 Peter says there's heresy out there. There's heresy. There's going to be people that want to come in and they're going to say things. Now, it's not hard to believe. Part of what technology has done for us, right, is every church, it seems like, has a video podcast now. At one point, we would have never had that. But go with blogs, go with podcasts, go with all of these things out there. Everybody has a microphone these days. And the question is, whose microphone do you allow to speak into your life? That's a significant thing. That's why when we start every sermon, we say, hey, turn in your copy of Scripture. We want your eyes to engage with the Word of God. So however you do that, be it digitally or in a, in a uh, copy of the Bible, that's great. We want you to open it up so that you turn on your mind and that you have the capacity to process this with us. First Peter says, we've got to wait. We've got to wait. We're not home yet. Second Peter says, hey, there's a real warning. You need to make sure that theologically, when you hear things that people say are coming from the Scriptures, that you take that whatever they've offered, and you put it against the grid of Scripture to say, does this measure up? We've got to be aware. We cannot just passively allow this stuff to begin to seep in. First Peter says, there's pain, but God's got a purpose and he's doing something in it. Second Peter says, hey, there's poison in the pews. We better be on guard. So there's a lot here for us when we come to this. And so we feel like for Peter to really capture what Peter wanted to offer us, be careful when you go through the world, but just recognize that when you come into this place, we need to be aware of what's being said and what's being taught, that the Word of God is being handled appropriately. So 2 Peter chapter 1, I invite you to turn there if you haven't already yet. We pick up in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So let's talk. We, we know that Peter wrote this. We know that he uses both his Hebrew name and his Greek name, Simon Peter. Now, I will tell you, we don't really know exactly who he was writing to. We're going to catch that in a second. But notice this. He, he gives himself two labels here that I think addresses the why of his writing. He says, first off, I'm a servant. Second of all, I'm an apostle. Now, part of what he's going to address is we've talked about we, we need to learn, we need to understand the Scriptures because there's heresy coming in. We need to understand that there's false teachers. That's going to be all of chapter 2 is he begins with this idea that I think he wants us to know this. 
What he's about to write to us is not based on what he would want to write. He's not trying to earn our approval. He doesn't need our affirmation. And I think he communicates that through two words. First off, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything I'm about to tell you is because he's told me to tell you. That's my identity. My number one, my why in this life is that I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that flows something else. Guess what it flows? His apostleship. It literally means one who is sent. So I think if we take these words together, Peter says, look, I'm the one writing this and know this. There's two things about me. I operate under his authority. These are not my words. He's instructing me to do this. And then two, he sent me. And by the way, God will always call you before he sends you. And that's exactly what he's doing here. I think Peter wants us to be really, really clear. Everything I'm about to say, it really doesn't matter whether you agree with me or not. I'm telling you, the Lord has told me to do this and I'm sending you this message. And that's going to be my authority. Because part of what we're gonna hear is if you hear these other people saying different things, then he's gonna look at them and say, by what authority? Well, let me remind you of the authority. One is, I'm a servant of his. And two, he sent me to you to tell you this. That's the authority. So recognize as we go through this, other people are gonna say different things. So who did he write to? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Who's the ours? It's the apostles. I think Peter wants to be really, really clear. Hey, this faith that we're bringing you, the Lord Jesus gave to us. We have shared it with you. And so that's what we're offering you. Not everybody's going to believe that. There's going to be some people that are like, well, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. And oh, don't forget, you have to do that. And they just start loading us up with stuff. Why? because it elevates the position of some, right? Now we have a tiered family of God. Here's first here. They meet all the requirements. Look at all they did. And then, and they're of course telling you, hey, look, we're really, really great. You need to do all these things to get to our level. And if you don't, that's okay. I mean, maybe you're level two, maybe you're level three. Peter's words, to those who have obtained a faith on equal standing with the apostles. And you and I can say, I mean, really, how can you have equal standing? How how does that work? How does anybody have equal standing in the faith? I mean, some have known the Lord longer, some have memorized more verses, some are new, some came from other traditions, they're still figuring it out. How is it equal standing? Well, he tells us. You see what he said? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ God? Yes. God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness. Look, Paul picks the same idea up in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know how you have equal standing? Is when we recognize that we have no righteousness of our own at all. That the only righteousness we have is when the righteousness of Jesus Christ is taken and the theological word is imputed. When you take, when God sees the righteousness of Christ and puts it on everybody who has come to faith in him, that's how we have equal standing. We all have the same standard, which is righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where that comes from. And if you're here this morning and you're like, Lance, I'm not on equal standing, what I would tell you is this, is that's the beauty of the gospel, is that God does not have any second-class children. They're all his children. When we come to faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, see, the gospel is this, our sin, our rebellion, our lack of righteousness. Maybe you can say, well, I'm more righteous than so-and-so. Yeah, but we're not the totality of righteousness. 
our lack of the totality of righteousness drove a wedge between us and God. Jesus Christ comes in the faith. He achieves the righteousness of God, which means he doesn't have to pay the penalty of sin, but he chooses to do that for you and me. So he pays it for us. And because he conquers death and walks out of the grave, he offers you and me life. How is there equal standing? Because Peter is saying, look, here's what I'm doing. I'm an, I am a servant. I'm an apostle. I've been sent to you. And I'm writing to this letter, this epistle, to every one of you who's on equal footing with the same message and the same faith that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us. What's that equal standing? How does that happen? Because it's not based on our righteousness. It's based on the righteousness of God. And he turns around and says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, let me show you. If you're with us in 1 Peter, I'm sure you really remember verse, chapter 1, verse 2, where he introduces it, and he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, now look back down here at verse 2 here. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then he adds something. See, that grace and peace, while it's, it's, not, uh, it's not obligatory, it's not an obligation to put it, but over and over we read that in the epistles. And is that just something he's going through? Well, I think not, because I think he gets really intentional. In 1 Peter, as you go through this world, as there's external opposition, as you're facing hostility, what he says is grace and peace. But when he comes and says, hey, what's going on in the church? There's going to be heresy. There's going to be poison in the pews. Grace and peace. And where is that found? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. Because apart from the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, there will be no grace and peace. Because the moment you add anything to the righteousness of Christ or attempt to, you're going to start saying, have I done enough? Have I done enough? I don't know if I've done enough. Now I start filling out obligatory yes is yes. I mean, I mean, I guess I can do that. Yes. Well, I mean, they called from the church and said there's a need. I mean, I guess I have to do it, right? Because nobody else will do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Peter makes it really, really clear. Grace and peace are found when we understand the gospel and Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. That's why we come back to this. And so it's out of that backdrop that he begins to offer us some, some things he wants to share with us. Now, I'm going to tell you, he's going to tell us three resources that he's provided for us, and they're not insignificant. They are huge resources. Look with me, if you would, at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now, he identifies three promises there. The first of those, do you see it? His divine power. I love this. The, the word for power comes from the, it's where we get the word dynamite. The, the, the Greek word is actually dunamis. It's, where, it's literally where we get the word dynamite from. And so as Peter begins to talk us through this, for, for me, I've been there. I'm guessing you've been there. People tell me that they're there. We're like, I just don't know. I cannot be the spouse God calls me to be. I cannot be the child God calls me to be. I cannot be the sibling God calls me to be. I can't be the employee or the employer God calls me to be. I can't be the citizen this world calls me to be. It's just too hard. I can't keep up with all of it. And the first thing that Peter says is, you've got this divine dynamite that God put inside of you. 
Now, he uses a figure of speech. He uses it twice, actually, in this verse, where he takes two words and connects them with and. And so we could read them as they're two different things, everything pertaining to what? Life and godliness. He's really talking one thing. We have this divine dynamite that God put inside of you and me as believers that helps us live a godly life. We have everything we need for the godly life God is calling us to live. Now, let me tell you, right off the bat, that's encouraging to me. You mean I'm not outmatched? I may be overcommitted. I may be too busy. I may need to drop back to what the Lord is calling me to do. But when he tells me that God has granted to me this divine dynamite, this power that gives me everything I need pertaining to the godly life, it's pretty incredible. All of a sudden, okay, take a deep breath, Lance. We're going to get through this. We're just going to start moving through it. And so as he begins to offer us this, we see several of these things that he's telling us. Now, let me tell you, part of what happens, I think, is this. When we live our Christian life, if he tells us he's given us everything we need pertaining to the godly life, and you and I can think, well, you know what? I've had that Romans 7 experience, if you're familiar with Romans 7, where Paul is like, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. And what I want to do, that's not what I do. As a matter of fact, I do just the opposite of what I want to do. If you've read that, you know what that feels like. And then you get to the end of the chapter, and he says this, but I find this to be true, is that in my inner man or woman is that my, my heart joyfully concurs with the law of God. That's what's most true about us as believers, is you have this new heart that, with God's law written on it that joyfully concurs with the law of God. He says, but I also find this to be true, that the members of my body are waging war against this heart. So the quest of the Christian life, so often we're like, I just need to read another book. Oh, my favorite author has another book coming out. Oh, the new podcast is coming out. Oh, a new study Bible is coming out. Study Bible for men, right? And you're like, well, this Bible's for men too, right? And so why would you market something that I've got to go buy when I already have one? Because we get caught in that bind of saying, I need more. Here's the reality of our Christian life. God said it through Peter. We have everything that we need to do this. The quest of the Christian life is not to get anything else in us. The quest of the Christian life is to let that new heart express itself and manifest itself out in this world. That's our calling. And so when he tells us that we have everything that we need, that's exactly right. He uses another thing. He uses that same figure of speech when he said about the knowledge of God who called us to his own glory and excellence. It's the same thing. It's one idea. His excellent glory. It is beyond reproach. There is nothing lacking in it by which he's granted to us. Look at how he describes these promises that they, he's granted them. So he's offered us something really, really significant. But he also tells us that they're precious and they're very great. Now, part of it is we've got this power where God has given us this power. Now he says, I've given you promises, and the promises are detailed in this book. Now, the question for you and me is, do we know them? This isn't something we need to get inside of us. The law of God's written on our hearts. We will need to manifest that. But this is how we get to understand that heart that God's already put there. And so these promises, they're not secrets. They're here. They're all recorded for us. We just don't always know them very well. And so when I went to the, the, our shepherding team, I said, hey, shepherding team at church, 
Share with me promises that are meaningful to you, promises that help get you through the day. Now, as I share this, I grabbed five of them uh, that were sent back to me. And as I thought, well, you know what? These are going to be, you know, like really, really secrets that you will have never heard of before. You know what our shepherding team said? How about this one? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. How many of us think, you know what, if I just had more, if I just had more of this, more of that, I would be content. Matter of fact, I would be comfortable and I wouldn't have to be afraid. The promise, God says, you know what's better than having more is having me. So let me give you me. You will never lose me. I'm with you everywhere you go. That's a good promise. How about this one? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know what problem nobody is having in the world today? Nobody is saying, Lance, I'm just so rested. I mean, I'm so rested. I need places to go invest myself. Nobody says that. And you know why? Because we don't feel it, because this world is exhausting, which is why when we come to the Scriptures, because the world won't tell you this verse, when we come to the Scriptures and you hear Jesus say, come to me, I will give you rest. Right? Oh, that's what my soul needs. Romans 8, 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And you and I look around and say, Man, this world, it just continues to not go the way that I want it to go. And the promise is, as God says, I'm over it. I'm sovereign. And I'm like, I can't make it work. He said, you don't have to. You get to come to me and rest. Let me work this out. See, we've got this divine power. We've got these divine promises. How about 2 Corinthians 3? Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Here's our confidence. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. If I were to ask you how many of us are acquainted with our inadequacy in this life, everybody in here, if they're honest, would raise their hand. And if I were to say, do you want to be sufficient? And you would say, oh, absolutely, because I'm tired of living in my inadequacies. Then we have the chance to look at you and say, you have sufficiency. It's not of you, it's of God. It's our Savior. See why we need to have a knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord? Because these are promises that he's made. Ephesians 2, uh, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you have a good work that you've done for the Lord, you recognize that didn't even originate in your mind. God created that moment. He created the path for you and you fell in line with what he was doing and said, join me. And you're like, I'm in. See, these are the promises. These are just five of them. This book is filled with them. And when we look up and see that he says, I've given you this divine power, this dynamite that I've put inside you. You have everything you need to go live this godly life that I'm calling you to live. And by the way, get to know the promises. I've given you promises to help you along the way that when you're like, I don't know, man. And you can, God says, no, read my promises. They're here for you. And we all of a sudden get a chance to lean into that because the third gift that he gives us is rather remarkable. Look with me, if you would, at the second half of verse 4. So that through them, through those promises, we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. I got to tell you, when I read this and when I say this, it still kind of makes me feel a little, because 
this ability to say that we have a divine nature sounds so new agey to me. And I can't get around the truthfulness of what Scripture just said. Scripture just says that we have this divine nature. Matter of fact, the phrase in the passage was we become partakers. The phrase literally means we become partners with. Is he's given us the power, he's given us these promises that play out and explain the power and what he says he's going to do. And then he says God has invited you and I to come alongside him to do the work in this world that he's doing. We get to be partners with him. Now, that is a rather magnificent, magnificent promise that we have. Now, to be sure, we don't experience all of the qualities of that divine nature now. But we can taste them. We can see them. They pop up in moments, and God uses them, and God encourages us in them. When all of a sudden you respond to something differently than maybe how you used to, and you're like, hey, man, that was God, (laughs) right? And that's what he's explaining here. Now, I got to tell you, One of the realities where I think we really see this is the fact that how can this be? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, the old nature, before you knew Christ, that that side couldn't partner with Christ. But because you're a new creation and you've got this new power, you've got these promises, you're invited into this work that God wants to do. Now, I got to tell you, I think there's an incredible passage in John 17. Now, I'm going to teach you a word here because it's going to be significant in a little bit again. So, when people talk about the Trinity, right, and people try to understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, how does that work? How do we believe that God is one, but He exists in three essences? And does He change? How does He mold? Did Jesus always exist? I mean, those are huge questions, I know. So, one of the questions that come to mind is when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all simultaneously exist as one because our God is one, How do they relate to one another? And so one of the questions or phrases how they've come up with is they refer to it as a sacred dance, okay? There's a sacred dance where they're all in harmony and this beautiful dance that we get to watch. Now, when they looked at that originally, centuries ago, the idea was this. They used a Greek term that was two Greek words. One was a preposition that said about or around, and the other one was the word we get choreographed from, to dance. So the idea was they were dancing about and around each other, okay? So we see that in this passage, John 17. Jesus is praying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is Jesus' prayer for us, okay? He's praying for those of us who would come to faith through the disciples and their written word. They've done it, okay? This is Jesus' prayer for us. Look at what he prays, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now, I got to tell you, in a world, 1 Peter, that is hostile to the faith, that we're sojourners, we're just passing through, we try to come up with the whole idea of apologetics, the ability to defend our faith. And we think about, oh, let me get some real zingers where I can win my non-Christian friends to Christ. Let, give me the debate point so that I can argue people to Jesus, right? And we want to have all the answers so we can do it. And I got to tell you, Jesus points to the fact, he said, you want to know the number one apologetic in the world? 
this will change the world, is that when we become one, that the world will know that Jesus is who he said that he is. And we're not doing a great job of that. But see, the sacred dance that's going on is this reality that Jesus, when he's praying for us, says, Father, you and I are one. And I want you to make them one because when they become one, then they will be one with us and then we're one with all of them one. And when that happens, the world will know that I'm exactly who I said that I am. The ability to dance with the Trinity, that's the invitation. And when we come to this and say, okay, so I, don't, I just don't know if I can do it. And God says, I gave you the power. I gave you the divine dynamite to do it. Well, I don't know. I gave you the promise that I would do it. You know, like, ah, I don't know. And he says, I made you partners with me in this world. And if the world doesn't see the dance, then it's because we have messed it up so horribly. This is the calling. This is what we were asked to do. This is what it's going to look like. We've been invited to dance with the Trinity. Now, think with me about how incredibly magnificent that is. And you and I can look up and say, I, 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 don't, I don't know how to dance. I don't even know what that looks like. What are the steps to dance with the Trinity? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort. Now, I want to stop for a second. If somebody gave me a nice set of golf clubs and you looked at my golf clubs and you're like, that guy's a golfer, what we would say is this, not yet, (laughs) right? If you've ever tried to play, you know. Nice clubs does not make you a golfer. It makes you a guy who has nice golf clubs. That's all that means. Because until you hit a driving range, until you get on a golf course and you start working off those, those new clubs, then you will never become a good golfer. And what we're about to talk about is this idea. When he says make every effort, he's talking about believers. He's talking about believers who have a righteousness from Jesus Christ. Their salvation is secure. This is not about their salvation. This is about once you get the golf clubs, how do you learn to play golf? And that's where he goes with this passage. Look with me. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement That word supplement is the same word where we get choresis, choreographed. Make every effort to take these things he's about to say and bring them alongside so that they dance with those gifts that you just had, the divine power, the divine promises, and the divine nature. Make every effort to supplement your faith with, and here we go, virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. There's your dance steps. There's your dance steps. This will not come as any surprise when we start thinking about this because it's the same way within our humanity, right? Warren Wearsby, a theologian, commentator says this, just as a normal baby is born with all the equipment he needs for life, and only needs to grow. So the Christian has all that is needed and only needs to grow. Spiritual growth is not inevitable. You and I both know that. It doesn't just happen. We have to lean into that for God to develop and cultivate those things in us. We can know the promise that we have power over sin, but until we apply that, we may not experience power over sin. That makes sense. And so that's the calling. And so we get these seven, these seven characteristics here. Well, let's talk about it. Virtue, the first one they list, a moral excellence. Now, 
just because you came to faith and you've now got this divine power and these divine promises and you've got this divine nature doesn't mean that you forgot the vocabulary you knew before you came to faith, right? It doesn't mean the jokes that you knew before you came to faith suddenly disappear. It requires leaning into so that we begin to reprogram our mind to think moral excellence. See, it begins to take shape because now we need knowledge. But we're not just talking about intellect. We're not just talking about let me win sword drills and let me just try to quote more verses than you. No, it is an acquired knowledge of walking with the Lord that we spend time with the Holy Spirit, we spend time in the Scriptures, and all of a sudden our knowledge is growing, our experiential knowledge is growing about who God is. And we're starting to see that that power really is a dynamite. And we're starting to see more promises. And when we see God show up in those promises, and then we have the opportunity to say, I'm, I'm partnering with God in what he's doing. And then before long, you say, like, wait a minute, did I just catch myself dancing with the Trinity? Because it's incredible. Self-control. It's when your passions are under control. It's the opposite of anarchy. No, my body does not get to rule the day. My faith is going to correct and, and derail those passions and, and say, no, Lord, I want you. In this, I want you. I want you more than anything. So I bring everything else under control because it's part of who God wants to be in me. Steadfastness, the ability to stand up under. You know, sometimes it feels like temptation is just crowding in, right? And we're like, the door is about to slam on us. And we're like, let me just get my foot in there. And now it's gonna hurt as it crunches my foot. That's not even this word. This word is another compound word, which means to stand up under something. It's the idea that I have the ability to stand up and get under it and put my hands up. So it's not that it's closing on my foot. No, it's a position of strength. You've got a solid base, your hands are put, and whatever you're facing, you can stand up underneath it. Well, how? Uh, divine dynamite, right? All of this is at play in this. And then all of this leads to this one where it says godliness. I got to tell you, our world has made this somewhat of a term that we say, well, what a screwy word, right? This word isn't a good word. You know what this is? This is a word that says, I recognize that there's an obligation for me to revere God for who he is. Because you know what? After all of these steps, it's this idea. I know who he is and I know who I am. And when I understand who he is and I understand who I am, then I will revere him because I am full of mistakes. I'm frail, I'm mortal, I'm not omniscient, I'm not omnipresent, I can't be everywhere at one time, I don't, I'm, I'm not omnipotent, I don't have all power. And the moment I see him for who he is and who I am, guess what the response is gonna be? And we didn't just get there, right? We, we went through all this, we started building moral excellence, we saw that he had it, we saw that we didn't. We needed knowledge for how to live this life. He had it, we didn't. And we go through all of these other giftings, these virtues, and we arrive at the, you're God and I'm not. And every one of these so far has been about our personal walk with God. But then he gives us this one. How about brotherly affection? How about we fervently care for other people in practical ways? Not to just say, have a good day, throw a Bible verse at them and send them on their way, but that we fervently find ways to care for and meet the needs of those people around us. See, that's when the world starts seeing the dance. 
right? That dance is honed in those first five. This is number six, where all of a sudden we're like, okay, okay, I've worked on those first five, and guess what? Now they're looking for an outlet, and they find their outlet with others because he gets to the end, and he says, love. A journey that started with faith and led through virtue and all these other ones gets to the end and says, you know where this should end up? Love. That's where this ends. If we keep growing in this, that's where it ends. Desiring the highest good for another person. I'm all in on you. It's not about me. God didn't make it about him. If we're going to get to know him better, we're going to get to know it shouldn't all be about us either. And all of a sudden, we start tracking through all of these things. Now, what if we don't? What if we say, I don't want to dance? Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So the first half of that is stated from a positive framework. The second half is stated from a negative framework. If you would allow me to put both of them in the positive framework, here's what Peter says. Look at your copy of Scripture. I'm not making this up. For if these qualities are yours, what qualities? Those seven things we just looked at. And they're increasing. They're growing. They're not just where they were yesterday. They're where they are today and where they will be tomorrow. If that's true, they will keep you effective and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're leaning into those seven things and they're growing and it's becoming part of our life and we're learning how to do that dance, see the things? We will be effective we will be fruitful. What? In the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not that you didn't know him. It was, do you want to produce fruit? Do you want to be effective for who God is and what he wants to do in your life? Because if we do, then that's, our, that's the goal, right? If these qualities are yours and they are increasing. But see, those all speak about spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not inevitable. We're going to have to go to the driving range sometime and learn how to hit a golf ball. What if I'm not? Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So there's our quote. Do you want to be in a position where you say, do you want to be effective and fruitful or not? Now, I know the answer, right? You know the answer. You want to be effective and fruitful or not? Because if you do, then we've got to cultivate these things. We've got to cultivate these seven characteristics. We've got to lean into these things. Lord, show me how to do this, that I might manifest these things, that I might partner with you. And don't ever say, I can't, because he's giving you the divine dynamite. You have it. Well, what if I'm alone? Well, no, we got the promises. You're not alone. You have everything you need pertaining to the life of godliness. It's all there for us. And what we come back around to is this. Do you want to be fruitful and effective? Let me ask you it a different way. When you get to heaven, and we're talking about believers, do you want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Because if you do, this is what being fruitful and effective accomplishes. Now, the only thing that maybe would be greater than hearing well done, good and faithful servant would be this, right? is if somebody you love and you've invested your life in, if you get to hear them hear those words, that you have somebody that you've given your life for in the way that you've lived out your life. And I'm thinking, yeah, I want to hear it, but I want my wife and I want my kids to hear it. See, this isn't just nonsense. As a matter of fact, he says that in that next verse, if you lack these qualities, you're so nearsighted. It's like, I might as well just be here. The word actually is myopic. 
You know, it's where we get our, our, uh, our eye doctor word. You know, it's just you're nearsighted. Think further. It matters how you live your life. You want to hear job well done, good and faithful servant? You want your loved ones around you to hear it? Then pull off the blinders, invest your life using the power and the promises and the nature that God gave you. See, all of a sudden I start reading this and I think, goodness. I hope I don't forget. See right there where it says, forgotten, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See, when Scripture uses the word forgotten, it doesn't use it like a mental defect, like, ah, oh, I forgot I was supposed to go to the store on the way home. No, that's not how it uses forgotten. It uses the word forgotten as a practical failure to forget the significance of something. If I'm living so nearsighted that I'm not thinking about what lies ahead, the opportunities that God has given me, that I can forget the significance of that, I might as well be blind because I can't see what God wants to show me. Being saved does not equal being useful to the Lord. This is an invitation to join him, to start working this out, to join him in this. And look at the fruit, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You know what? We don't need to carry false burdens that other false teachers would give you to carry. No, you've been saved from all of that. Know the gospel. Know the truth. Lean into these seven things. Exercise your faith. Because in verse 11, for in this way you will be richly provided for, your, for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This doesn't save us. No, but it's the assurance. God's at work in me. He's at work in me. I see it. I'm not who I used to be. I'm further along. I'm not there yet, but I'm dancing. I'm learning the steps, and I'm figuring it out with him because he continues to give me the power. He continues to give me his promises. He continues to invite me to participate. Thomas Kelly, the one who wrote the quote I started with, says this, the life, life from the sinner is a life of unhurried peace and power. It is simple. It is amazing. It is triumphant. It is radiant. It takes no time, but it occupies all of our time. We do not need to get frantic. God's at the helm. And when our little day is done, we lie down quietly in peace for all is it well. Why? Because he gave you everything you needed. You grew and developed. You became effective in God's hands for his purposes. You developed fruit. And all of a sudden, you had the privilege to dance with the Trinity. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.